Would you take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 1 while you're opening there? We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 17 in a moment and focus specifically on verses 16 and 17. And the great pastor and commentator, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this about our passage this morning. He's, quote, I suppose, in a sense, there are no two verses of greater importance in the whole of Scripture than the two verses that we are now considering. Well, so that it's only two verses we will seek to understand and apply two of the most important verses in the whole of Scripture. So we're going to read verses 1 through 17, look, and then ponder specifically 16 through 17 together. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, but who was publicly declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may encourage, I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning eager to hear from your word. But Father, knowing uh, that we are dependent upon your Spirit to understand it, Father, but more importantly, to apply it to our lives, that we would go forth changed because of the truth found in this passage this morning. 
We pray that you would give us understanding and that you would change us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So Paul spends the first 15 verses of this letter in his typical introductory style, giving foundational truths about Christ, explaining who he is and who the letter is to, thanking God for their faith, and always mentioning them in his prayers. He admits in verse 13, if you'll notice, that he's never actually been to Rome. And he's, he wrote several letters like that to cities he had never been to. But he has often intended to go. And then in verse 15, Paul states that he is eager to come preach the gospel to these believers. And then in verse 16, we have the first major statement of this letter. Here, Paul sets the tone for not only this section or this chapter, but for the entire book of Romans itself. And let us not underestimate our task this morning, which is to understand the theme verses of this entire book, which actually many commentators and theologians agree is the primary doctrinal exposition of the entire Christian faith. Within the book of Romans, we find many of the essential truths of Christianity. And at the heart of this grand book, we find these two verses. As you look over the verses again, notice all the theologically rich words that you see in them. Gospel, power of God, salvation, belief, Jew and Gentile, righteousness, revelation, and faith. I think you would be hard-pressed to find two verses that have any more weighty vocabulary. And so this morning we dive into these rich waters seeking the Lord's guidance to not only understand what Paul is saying here, but to understand what it means for us today. Paul's statement on the surface, his opening statement, is introductory and cursory. So he's not ashamed of the gospel. So what? It almost seems like a religious platitude at first, just a statement, or worse, an arrogant zinger at an audience who may well have been ashamed of the gospel. But notice that first little word at the beginning, for. Paul inextricably links his eager desire to preach the gospel, in verse 15, to his view of the gospel itself, in verses 16 and 17. Paul preaches because he is not ashamed of the gospel. Or the reverse, Paul, or you could substitute I, Do not preach the gospel because I am ashamed of the gospel. The first thing we have to understand this morning is that our desire to be a witness of the gospel of Christ is in direct correlation with our view of it. If we miss this, then we miss the entire point of these two verses. Shame brings silence. Or we could think of Paul's statement here in the positive. He could easily have said, for I am proud of the gospel. And certainly he says that elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 1, 31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. But here in Romans 1, he puts it in the negative. I am not ashamed. And I think there's probably two possibilities for why he does this. First, he's certainly reaching out to the Roman believers at this point. 
it would certainly have been a huge temptation for them to feel ashamed of the gospel. After all, they lived in the center of the known world, and the city surrounded by heathen worship of false gods or worship of an emperor, etc. The pressure would have been enormous for them to feel shame in this small, almost provincial religion of that day. And yet Paul encourages them to not be ashamed. Secondly, it's also likely that Paul himself felt this very temptation. Though he declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel, it would have been certainly a common temptation for him to feel this way. He was a man constantly chased, beaten, imprisoned. And then the physical harm wasn't enough. He faced the mental challenge of sitting down against the world's leading philosophers who did nothing all day except sit around and debate the philosophy and religion. With scoffing, he must have endured at the hands of the world's philosophical elite. And yet Paul unequivocally says that despite all of the reasons that you could think of to be ashamed of this gospel, he's not. Well, what does it mean to be ashamed? Let me read just a couple of passages that where this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. This should shed some light on what Paul could mean by not being ashamed. 2 Timothy 1, he says this, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Here, Paul's telling Timothy that Onesiphorus was not ashamed of his change, chains. Paul explains what he means by saying that even though Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel, Onesiphorus sought him out. He risked imprisonment himself to come find Paul and encourage Paul. He did not shy away. He risked his own life and reputation by coming to see his friend. And so we see that being ashamed or not being ashamed means being willing to put everything on the line for the sake of that thing that is valuable. He says this in 2 Timothy 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, again, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul specifically states here that not being ashamed of the gospel, which he calls the testimony of our Lord, means sharing in in suffering for the sake of Christ. For Paul, sharing in Christ's suffering meant being willing to go to jail and ultimately die for the name of Jesus. Again, the idea of doing everything for the sake of the gospel. Or in Mark, Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and perverse generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here we see God's reaction to those who are ashamed of him and his gospel. So putting these last several points into context, we see that God actually forsakes the one who forsakes him. God will not rescue him or her who chooses to forsake the name of Christ. So that we see that being ashamed of the gospel is a very serious thing. It involves all that we are and puts us in a very bad place should we choose to be ashamed. 
And so we, sitting in our chairs this morning, must ask ourselves this question. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Unless any of us sit here and declare that we have never felt this temptation, I will say that facing this temptation is not a bad thing. And in fact, I would argue, is a necessary thing. If any of us here this morning finds ourselves not facing this temptation, I would think that you must reevaluate your view of the gospel, your gospel itself. The scripture makes it clear that the preaching of the gospel will never come easy. And today, I think, is harder than ever. Our world, though neutral by name, is hostile to the things of God. Truth is lost under the guise of religious tolerance. The very morals of our country, which were founded on a biblical revelation, are being corroded. And this is often praised by many as a good thing. Moral relativism scoffs at truth. Religious tolerance defames the name of Jesus, who called himself the only way to inherit eternal life. Beloved, we must understand that this world is dead set against the God of this universe. And we are called to be on the front lines, declaring his name to an unbelieving and perverse generation. Then there is the folly of the gospel in the eyes of the world. We preach not a philosophy, but a set of facts about a man who lived 2,000 years ago, who was hung on a cross. We preach a gospel which is open to everyone, no matter race, or wealth, or fame, or intellect. It is offensive to say that the lowliest of humans has as much of a chance, if not even more of a chance, to inherit eternal life than the most learned man. We preach a gift, something which can never be earned. Certainly, says the world, there must be some kind of effort to inherit eternal life. There's no way that a righteous God could accept anyone who doesn't put forth effort to get there. In the eyes of the world, there is much to be ashamed of. The world asks, how could anyone ever buy into such a false hope? Or be so duped by the lies of intolerance or unlearned men. Brothers and sisters, if we do not face the temptation of backing away, calling it quits, or publicly forsaking the name of Jesus, then we need to reevaluate how well we really are fulfilling our role as followers of Christ. Do people know who we represent? Facing this temptation is entirely different, different than succumbing to the temptation. And thus the reason, I think, why being tempted in this way is a good thing. And yet Paul confidently says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But why? Why is it that Paul is so confident in this statement? Why is it that Paul so eagerly desires to preach the word of God, a message that could have gotten him killed? Well, he gives two reasons for his confidence, which lie in the rest of this verse. And the next. These reasons are key for Paul, I think, and for us to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to boldly boldly go out and preach the name of Christ. First, Paul has a deep understanding of what the nature of the gospel is. And secondly, Paul understands what the purpose of the gospel is. So, why is Paul not ashamed? Why should we not be ashamed? 
Look what he says. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the key to eternal life. And this is not something to be taken lightly. Understanding the true nature of the gospel must drive us to preach it. The path of salvation is the only essential truth that matters to anyone in life. If there were only one thing that someone ever needed to know, it certainly must be the truth of the gospel. But why does Paul phrase it like this? Why is the gospel about God's power? Why doesn't he say knowledge or wisdom or love? Certainly those things are true and essential to the gospel as well. But Paul specifically says power. How is the gospel about God's power? Let's think about it a little bit. And understanding God's power to save, we could certainly look at the Old Testament and all the things God did in in there to, to show the nation of Israel and the world his power to save. He brought the worst plagues known to man upon the nation of Egypt while he spared Israel. He he held the waters of the Red Sea walled up while Israel could pass through on dry ground. Then he brought the waters crashing down on the heads of the Egyptians. He miraculously provided food and water for 40 years as the nation wandered around in the wilderness as a consequence of their own sin. He stood the the sun still in the sky for a whole day so that Israel could defeat its enemies. He brought the walls of Jericho crashing down in a heap with only the shout of the Israelites. We could list example after example of God's power to save in the Old Testament. But in reality, I think we need to go no further than our own hearts to realize God's power to save. After all, how many of us were actively pursuing God out of the goodness of our own hearts. Scripture and our own experience, I think, make it extremely clear that we were, in fact, running away from God. Our sinful hearts have known nothing but evil and deceit. And Paul says in chapter 5 that we were actually enemies with God in our sinful state. We wanted nothing to do with him. It was impossible for us to go against the desires of our own hearts, running after the things that gratify our pleasures and lusts. And yet God reached into our hearts and drew us to himself. He is the only one able to do such an impossible act, to reach into the life of a sinner and breathe new life. That is the ultimate act of power. He says at the beginning, that the power of God raised Christ from the dead and it breathes life into the dying sinner. This is the essence of the gospel, to rescue a dying sinner and give new life. And this is why Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation. Were we, were we able to accomplish this feat on our own, there would have been no reason for the cross, no reason for the grave, or no reason for the resurrection. God could just leave us unattended to accomplish our own salvation by ourselves. But by his sovereign grace, he chose to act by sending Christ to the cross to accomplish what no man ever could. And notice the second part of this statement in verse 16. It is God's power to save all who believe. 
This is why preaching the gospel so unashamedly is imperative. Because the only requirement on the part of humanity is belief. We do not go around preaching works, earning our way to heaven, doing enough good things. But we preach belief. How could we hold this in? Understanding that belief leads to eternal life must drive us to preach. And yet we walk around acting as if we are carrying some secret. Almost as if we think we have the right to decide who gets in and who doesn't. But no, Paul says, it is God's power to all who believe. Are we not then obligated to preach to all? Yes. And this is the greatest news that has ever graced this earth. This is that precious treasure that Christ talks about in the parable. That you sell everything to buy. Let us no longer hide the light under our bushel, as the old children's song goes. But let us let that light shine. Paul says this in chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So we have seen that knowing what the gospel is should keep us from being ashamed of it and drive us to eagerly preach it. But let us look at what Paul says that the gospel does. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Notice what the gospel does here. He says it reveals God's righteousness. The gospel teaches us something about God. And that thing it teaches, which he mentions here and throughout the rest of this book, is God's righteous character. How amazing is it that in the nature of the gospel, he shows us something about himself. And isn't it interesting that this is one of the main atheistic arguments Against the presence of God or the existence of God. Well, if he really did exist, wouldn't he show us himself? Wouldn't he teach us about himself? Well, Paul says right here that God, through the truth of Jesus Christ, not only shows himself, but shows us something about himself. How significant is this in our preaching of the gospel? God has chosen not to leave humanity in the dark, but in lightness. With even just a glimpse about part of who he is. He certainly doesn't give us the whole picture. He makes that clear in Deuteronomy 29, 29. But the things he gives us and shows us, he does for a reason. So yes, God is teaching us something about himself in the gospel. And so we, when we preach, we must understand that. We must teach people about who God is. We cannot miss the opportunity to reveal the character of God. The gospel fails to be the gospel if, in fact, it's not centered around the very nature of God himself. And what is it that Paul says the gospel reveals? Well, certainly elsewhere in Scripture we see many things that the gospel shows us. John 3, verse 16, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the gospel reveals God's love. The manner in which God loves is by killing his own son. Or Paul, in the opening verse of Ephesians, says that the gospel reveals God's sovereign grace by choosing some to believe 
and not allowing them to perish. But not here. Paul centers his argument around God's righteousness. Paul says that to be emboldened to preach the gospel, we must understand his righteous character. Well, what is that? What is his righteousness? Well, in short, it's God's, uh, it's the way in which God shows himself as perfectly just and the perfect standard by which all else is measured. And that perfect standard is incapable of being violated. So we see that in the revelation of God's righteousness, God shows himself to be the perfect standard by which everything else is measured. Well, let's look at some scriptural evidence that follows God's teaching on righteousness, this idea of God being righteous. And as we look at these passages, I think we'll see two themes arise. That people are commanded to be righteous in their thoughts and actions, but that righteousness is something that God has to give. Genesis 15.6, this is referring to Abraham. It says, and he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This is the first word, use of the word righteousness in the Bible, which means that we kind of have to pay attention to it. And the first thing we see is that God credits belief as righteousness. Abram is not doing anything special at the moment other than believing what the Lord told him, the promises that he gave him. And yet God, by the faith of Abraham, counts him or considers him a righteous individual. It's important. And three chapters later, in in chapter 18, he says this, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In this passage, only three chapters later, we see that God has Abram commanding his house to do righteousness. And this is keeping with the way of the Lord. So first we see that God counts faith as righteousness. But then here, he asks his followers to act righteously. It's important to keep that order straight. God counts as righteous first, and then commands to act righteously. Notice another example of this from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. In this verse... Jesus is saying that the righteousness of his followers must surpass that of the religious leaders. But everyone would have known that this would have been impossible, considering that the religious leaders were known to be blameless. And so entering the kingdom of heaven involves something other than being blameless in one's actions. The only righteousness that would have surpassed that of the religious leaders must certainly be from God himself. For there is no other way to gain that righteousness. And yet, look what Jesus says a few verses later, the beginning of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying that for his followers, there are righteous ways to act. But whenever eternal life is mentioned we see that doing the right things is never 
Belief is what makes someone truly righteous. Another aspect that scripture is very clear on is that God's wrath is an outpouring of his righteousness. Psalm 9 verse 8 says this, And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Here, David inextricably intertwines the righteousness of God and the judgment of God. Or Psalm 97 verse 2, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Notice that the psalmist says righteousness and justice, or more accurately, judgment, are the foundations of God's throne. Again, these two ideas are linked together. Also notice what Paul does in the following verses in Romans 1, at verse 18. After stating that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, he spends a large chunk of verses explaining how God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteous people in the world. His righteous character must judge unrighteousness, or else his perfect righteousness would be violated. Let me say that again. God's righteous character requires that he judge unrighteousness. Judgment of sin is imperative and inevitable. No one can escape his wrath. And that's why it's impossible for anyone to try to earn their way to heaven. If perfect justice is the standard, then any sin would immediately render that one incapable of standing in the presence of a perfectly just and holy God. It is our sin that separates us. We cannot miss this point in our unashamed preaching of the gospel. And herein we see another obvious way in which we can be ashamed of the gospel. We leave holes in what we preach. Oh, we certainly love telling people of God's love, don't we? The warm and love is warm and fuzzy. It makes us feel good. We love going to weddings to bask in people's love. And yet none of us really ever like going to funerals because it forces us to reconcile with the righteous judgment of God in death. We would rather leave out God's righteous standard afraid that it might make someone turn away. And so we only give part of the truth. Well, this, as Paul says, is not the gospel. In the preaching of the gospel, people must be forced to reconcile with a God who is perfectly righteous in every way. And until this part of God's nature is wrestled with, a full understanding of the gospel can never be achieved. So why then does Paul say This is, in fact, a reason to be unashamed in preaching. It seems like a reason that we could be ashamed if we believe in a God whose justice might overpower his love. But Paul goes on. He says that God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. What does this mean? Well, I think he explains it in the very next phrase. He moves us from thinking that he just is talking about God's righteous character and understanding that his righteous character has something to do with us. Look what he says. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is a quote taken from Habakkuk 2.4, 
where Habakkuk says that the only way to escape the judgment of God by the Assyrian army is to have faith. Here again, we're drawn right back to the heart of the gospel message. How is it that a righteous man could coexist with a sinful A righteous God can coexist ever with a sinful man. Though he explains it further in chapter 5, Paul states here that the gospel is about God's righteousness being given to sinful man so that man might live and God's righteous character is not violated. The righteous will live by faith. This is the duty of faith. It it is the means by which God takes his own righteous character and imputes it, reckons it, or considers it as the new character of the one displaying faith. The sinful human heart, or the sinful human, inherits eternal life because by faith, God counts the sinful righteous, the sinful human, as righteous by laying that sin on Christ at the cross. This is the gospel message. In this, we see God's righteous character revealed. Paul summarizes this teaching in chapter 3, where he says that at the cross, we can understand that God is both just, he's perfectly sinless and holy in judging sin, and yet the justifier, or the one who removes sin, and replaces it with his own righteous character. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, For our own sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel that we are unashamedly called to preach. And as we sit here this morning and contemplate this great mystery of God, how can we not be driven to preach it? This is the God whom we serve. We serve a God who in his power reaches into the sinful heart to save it, to count it as righteous and give it everlasting life. And who would take that sin and place it on his own son at the cross and pour his wrath out on him. What an awesome truth set before us this morning. And that we consider this week, Good Friday, we celebrate on Easter. So in closing, I ask again, are we ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we listen to a world that tells us we're crazy or worse, intolerant? Or do we see God is so great that we must that we would count no cost too great, count no persecution or embarrassment too much that we would preach the gospel to everyone he lays in our path. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let's pray.